You're listening to Berlin Psychoanalytic Podcast. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Alexander Dmitrievich discussing mutuality in psychoanalysis. So that leads me to the point number five, and that is mutuality. Despite the early beginnings, contemporary psychoanalysis believes that everything that is important developmentally and clinically develops in a space we build together with other persons. So these are some of the expressions for this most important task, to create a transitional space or the analytic third, like there's one person and there's another person, the analyst and the client, and they need to build the analytic third, something that is very unique for their relationship and that single therapy, and that is different than one person alone and the other person alone, and that they share. The other word that is used very, very frequently in the world of psychoanalysis today is intersubjectivity. Both persons are subjects that are involved in the situation with their conscious and unconscious parts. They have initiatives and flaws and all of those are present in the field. What is specific about analytic mutuality is that it is asymmetrical. So it is not a friendship where two or more friends are all equal and all share in the same way. There are relationships, the analytic relationship being one of them, that are asymmetrical. One person offers more of something and the other person offers more of something else. The most typical relationship of that kind is parenthood. If we would try to follow the idea that infants and toddlers can have symmetrical mutuality with their parents, everything would be destroyed within several days. Watch South Park carefully if you don't believe me. The same in analysis. The analyst will not say everything, will not reveal all of his or her thoughts, will require of the, of the client to say everything, yet the analyst will share some of the thoughts, some of the emotions that he or she believes are beneficial for the client, can help in understanding and improvement. I will, I will show you only bits of, of, of this field that is now growing very, very fast. This is the usual uh, old, I would say, psychoanalytic understanding of development. So there are different developmental stages based on different erogenous zones and their tasks and disorders that develop if these are not, these do not go well. Oral, anal, phallic, latency and genital stages, I guess, are common knowledge by now. Why am I uh, talking about them now. In Freud's opinion, these develop as a biological law. A child is born here or any other part of the planet, today or any moment in the past, and these will simply follow. No way for the society to influence, no way to skip or introduce another one. It does not depend on us. This is a very popular thing. I, I, I believe you're all familiar, familiar with this expression, attachment theory. I don't have time, unfortunately, to talk about it in, in too much detail. These are four attachment patterns 
If you're not very familiar with them, I hope you can remember these characters and they uh, will show you what the idea is. During the 1960s, attachment theory was developed on the premise that the most important thing you need to have in the childhood is a relationship with someone who can provide what's called secure base. That this person can provide comfort when you're anxious and inspiration to explore when you're not afraid anymore. And this secure base that you receive usually from the mother or another grown-up who cares about you should become a part of your personality and then the expression for it is internal working model. You should have two internal working models, anxiety and avoidance, as a part of your personality. They work, hypothetically, as sets of expectations for social interactions in future. So, I have to leave it here. This is something we can talk about for, for months. Attachment theory changes the focus of psychoanalysis completely because the suggestion now is that we should not focus on drives but on the issues of security and survival. Because attachment theory has very strong evolutionary background, the idea is that when you think about our predecessors 50,000 years ago, 250,000 years ago, the major issue for the human infants, which are completely hopeless if left alone, is how to survive in nature. So the idea is that infants survive because they are born equipped with important knowledge. And that is not languages or math or anything like that, but this is the knowledge. This is the phrasing I, I came up with. I, I, I don't know whether you'd find it in Bowlby like that. Various mechanisms for initiating, modulating, maintaining, and interrupting social interaction. So infants can smile at you in order to attract you to start playing with them. They can cry to make you afraid so that you can come and try to help sol them solve the problem. They can show you when they don't want to play anymore. They can show you that it's time for a break and so on and so on. Language and everything else will come later on when these important things are taken care of. Our usual adult cognitive world is something of absolutely secondary importance. This is a more recent line of research in the same field. There are authors in the United States mostly who make videos of mother-infant interactions. This boy is four months old and Two cameras are used and then edited so that you can see both faces at the same time. And then they observe them and analyze them frame by frame. So one twenty-fourth part of a second and then the next and the next. And I'm sorry I have to say you have to trust me uh, when I say this. I, I don't have time to show it to you today. When you watch it frame by frame it's a completely different world. When you watch 30 seconds in real time, there is nothing very interesting. When you watch frame by frame, all of a sudden you see a completely different world. Based on what they do at the age four months, they can make very strong predictions on, on what will happen with babies at 12 months and then six years. How? Based on individual elements of social interaction. 
based on the synchrony of what the baby is sending as a message and what the mother understands and then does. For instance, insecure attachment will develop if the child very clearly does what I've just shown a couple of minutes ago. Break. So, hands in front of the face, head back into the right. If the mother understands this, leans back in her chair and waits for the child to engage again, most probably this child goes towards secure attachment. Just this one thing has very high predictability. If to this the mother reacts by going forward, protruding through the hands of the child, most probably we are going toward insecure attachment. Because probably the mother cannot deal with several moments of being alone, separated from the baby. So, two basic grains of salt from this. Infants are relational beings from the very beginning. Without being relational, we wouldn't survive. And then, it takes two minds for one person to be able to think. If left in isolation, in childhood, or in moments in adulthood when anxiety is high, you cannot think. You need another mind to help your mind develop or be able to use your capacity to think about emotions. So clinically, this has introduced huge changes because now interpretations and words do not have to be the most important part of psychoanalytic working. Sometimes being with a client, waiting, being supportive may be far more important. The time for interpretations may come in a faraway future. The analytic situation is now very often understood in, in terms of something like psychoanalytic constructivism. There is no truth that the psychoanalyst is supposed to reveal to you, but there is a meaning of the situation or of a memory or of a dream that two persons are supposed to develop jointly. This is a joint work now where the analyst should be a little bit better in understanding some things or dealing with anxiety, but both should do it together. Questions that are in the focus of psychoanalytic thinking in the last decade are disclosure, so how much the analyst should say about him or herself, which moments, which type of stuff, and so on. And then the focus is on counter-transference. What happens inside of us and how does it influence the clinical situation? This topic that in the first half of the 20th century was um, almost undiscussed is now in the center of attention. How do we contribute to the good and the bad moments in the analysis? The most current understanding of this is this uh, concept here, co-transference. So, transference would be on the part of the, of the patient, counter-transference would be on the part of the analyst. Contemporary authors think this distinction is meaningless, this is one and the same process that two persons contribute to at the same moment, so it should be co called co-transference. Thank you for listening. For more content, subscribe to our podcast or find us on our YouTube channel. Psychoanalysis should be free.